I think crypto is here to stay. The regulation is expanding and evolving here in the U.S. We've lagged uh, a lot of other places in the world quite a bit, but there's a lot of movement going on everywhere. You know, the other thing we're going to start talking about, quite frankly, and, and is already here is tokenization. So that's where you're taking a traditional security and you're tokenizing it and putting it on blockchain. That is already happening. I don't have any specific, you know, call outs about cryptocurrencies in general, but Bitcoin is definitely not going away. We're definitely moving into a new era. All right. Welcome to Alternative Universe. This is a show for financial advisors, fund managers, and those who want to navigate the diverse landscape of alternative investments and explore opportunities that lie beyond the conventional. Today, we're taking a trip down a road that makes some of us uneasy. We're going to be speaking with the law. <laughs> Joined by one of our mammoth partners, Cassandra Borchers, attorney at law. Cassandra is a partner in the corporate transactions and securities and investment management practice groups and chair of the blockchain and cryptocurrencies group of Thompson Hine. Her practice has focused on securities, finance, venture capital, cryptocurrency, blockchain matters, corporate representation, governance matters, all the way down the list. And so I'm really honored to welcome you to the show today, Cassandra, um, to talk about your experience and where the law and alternatives intersect. Fantastic, Steve. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Um, so before we get into current matters and really, you know, this idea of what we represent here, Alternatives Universe, which, you know, we like to explore all the ancillary topics. And, mm -hmm. you know, when we talk about securities law and our audience, when we speak to financial advisors and fund managers, there's a lot that goes into it. And so we get tons of questions. And we were so fortunate to have this partnership with you where we can direct these questions to you and make introductions and help all the people that we serve get awesome advice. If you don't mind just telling us a little bit about your background, how did you get here? How'd you get interested in this? First of all, I, I, I graduated from law school over 25 years ago. And um, so I've been practicing for a very long time. Initially out of law school, quite frankly, I, I had a friend who was working for an administrator for mutual funds. She really loved her job and uh, that got me interested. You know, one thing led to another and that's what uh, kicks me off in the space. When I started law school, mutual funds were not even on my radar screen, to be quite frank. And even clerking throughout law school, it was a little bit more litigation focused, which I did, I did not love. I knew I wasn't uh, super jazzed about that. So took a chance, tried something different and, uh, you know, here I am. Many, many years later, started out, like I said, in the mutual fund industry. I still work with registered funds. Mutual funds have grown, and now we have ETFs and interval funds. There's all sorts of registered fund products out there now, a lot in the alternative space, quite frankly. And so build, building upon that, I you know, moved across the country at one point, uh, so I had to leave that job, got into just you know general corporate work, and that's when I started working with a lot of venture capitalists and startups. And, you know, my experience has just expanded from there. You know, when I came back here, I was a CCO, a chief compliance officer for a hedge fund, a firm that had a hedge fund and some private equity funds. Kind of bundled that all up together. And I joined Thompson Hine 12 years ago so that I could, you know, work on all of the things that I love. That's incredible. Yeah. So joining Thompson Hines has really allowed you to um, take everything, all of your experience and bring it into one 
one bundle, one practice where you can serve all these different mm-hmm. types of clients. Yeah, it, it really has. It really has. Like I said, I still, I, I'm in the investment management group primarily. And so I still work on all sorts of registered funds. I do a lot of private fund formation. We, I also advise investment advisors. And, you know, that omnipresent compliance piece is always in there as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the big C for us, a lot of the time when we're speaking with advisors who are maybe alternative curious, if it's not registered, if it's not, doesn't have a publicly traded ticker symbol, sometimes it's just like, we can't touch it. And I think a lot of that has to do with not knowing where correct and accurate information is. And then internally, if they have a compliance group that isn't focused on it, that introduces a massive hurdle, right? It, it, it really can. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the regulations have it just expanded in all, in all sorts of ways over the years that I've been practicing. And it, you need to be cautious about it. You need to have a really strong compliance team, you know, legal advisors and, and groups like Mammoth to kind of help you work through all of the details to make sure that you're properly serving your clients. Yeah, absolutely. And even I think for People who would be considered seasoned, who know the industry well, and who are um, been in the in the private industry, and actually, let's let's talk about that. We talk a lot about alternatives. Obviously, it's the name mm-hmm. of our show. Um, but you mentioned earlier, there's a lot to alternatives when we think of that as a sector, right? And it's not just they're, that they're all private; some of them are public. Yeah, sure that that's absolutely true. Quite frankly, I think though. The lines are really blurring around what's traditionally thought of as a private investment versus a a registered fund. A lot of registered funds have gone off in the direction where they want to be able to offer an alternative investment, you know, mainstream to retail clients. And that's the reason for registration. And so we have all sorts of products. You know, there's some limits in traditional mutual funds and even ETFs about, you know, how much of that you can offer. But we've got these uh, registered interval funds or tender offer funds. They don't have the same type of liquidity as an ETF or a mutual fund, but they are registered products. And you can get to a lot of alternative asset classes via those funds. Obviously, we still have the, you know, the private fund markets, which have been exploding, continue to explode. So much so that the uh, SEC put forth and adopted some new private fund rules to try to trying to rein the private funds in a little bit, quite frankly. We'll talk about that in a little bit. These quote-unquote alternatives are cropping up everywhere. I mean, just uh, just last week, I suppose it was, the SEC kind of reluctantly, but they did approve some uh, you know, spot Bitcoin ETFs. So alternatives are not just in the private fund markets. So there's a lot of optionality out there, depending on the type of investor you are, the type of advisor you are, who your clients are, and there are ways you know, to get people exposure. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's click into the um, spot Bitcoin ETFs and and these ETFs. I like that you said reluctantly. I'd like to hear a little bit more on that view. I really feel like it's it's a new era. It's kind of us accepting that crypto's here to stay. It's not mm-hmm. probably a trend, but does this make a massive impact on all the private infrastructure that's been put in place to support the crypto industry? I think it's welcomed by the crypto industry. And I say reluctant. I mean, this all is fallout from some lawsuits, quite frankly. And so the SEC was deemed to have not properly reviewed some of these applications and they were given a deadline. They went ahead and did approve the the 11 that were in the pipeline. 
So if we back up a little bit, it's been a few years prior to um, Chair Gary Gensler coming in into play. The SEC had said that they did not think that they did not deem Bitcoin or Ethereum to be securities. That's why we're looking at Bitcoin ETFs right now. There are some Ethereum ones in this pipeline that I expect will eventually come to market also. Those are the only two cryptocurrencies that the SEC has said are not securities. And even that they tried to backtrack from. I mean, that was prior administration. So I think crypto is here to stay. You know, there are some people who are real enthusiasts and in different parts of the world. I mean, you can see the regulation. The regulation is expanding and evolving here in the U.S. We've lagged uh, a lot of other places in the world quite a bit, but there's a lot of movement going on everywhere. You know, the other thing we're going to start talking about, quite frankly, and, and is already here is tokenization. So that's where you're taking a traditional security and you're tokenizing it and putting it on blockchain. That is already happening. And so I, I don't have any specific, you know, call outs about cryptocurrencies in general, but Bitcoin is definitely not going away. We're definitely moving into a new era. It really is. But I, I mean, I think that this does bring it to be a little bit more mainstream, you know, having these spot ETFs. I, I mean, just think about it. The way ETFs have revolutionized public markets, you know, all the way from from precious metals into now cryptocurrency and just commodities in general. It's allowed you to to make investments and have allocations to these assets um, in a right. way more secure fashion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're not keeping gold bars in a in a safe <laughs> in your house, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, you know, and even even with the Bitcoin, I, I remember when I first started getting interested in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, et cetera, my husband's greatest concern was like, oh, my gosh, you know, you have these private keys to this wallet, you know, and it does happen all the time. People lose that information. So if you can get some access and not have to maintain that security yourself, it does seem like a, a better situation in a lot of ways. There's some yeah. fees associated with that, but. Absolutely. Aren't there always? There always are. There, there always, always are. are. Well, let's back up a little bit. Tell us a little bit more about your firm um, in general. Uh, tell us about Thompson Hine. Yes. So Thompson Hine, we are actually based out of Ohio, uh, but we do have offices in all the larger cities, at least on the East Coast and in Chicago. So we're in, you know, we're in the DC market. We're in Atlanta, Chicago, New York, and throughout the state of Ohio. We have approximately 400 attorneys, uh, I think, at the moment. Like I said, we've got seven offices. Uh, it's a fantastic group. I think one of the biggest advantages to Thompson Hine is we've got seasoned professionals who are not living in the coast in these larger cities. And so we can provide a more economical solution to clients with, you know, just within our investment management group, we've got about 13 attorneys in there now. We have you know, people who have come from the SEC, people who have come from very large public companies, market players. Uh, we have people who have spent their entire practice term in private practice. So we have prior CCOs. We've got a variety. We've got a very deep bench, a lot of different experience. And it's it's fantastic because we're very collegial. We all work together as a group. And that allows us to stay up to date on the current events and the latest, latest and greatest. The SEC has been extremely active with their regulation under Gary Gensler, and we're right in there making sure that our clients are up to date, we're up to date, and, um, you know, helping everyone. I think the best part of my job is helping people come up with a great solution. I mean, we will get calls sometimes from a client who wants to start a fund. They don't know whether it's going to be registered or private, but they know what their goals are, and they know what, they, what their asset class is, what they want to invest in. 
And we can really sit down and talk about the structure and, and help them analyze the best path forward. It's been really great. And then the, the blockchain and cryptocurrency, I, I got interested in that back in probably 2016. That practice is growing as well. We've got some private funds and we advise our, some of our registered fund clients on what they can and cannot do in the space. You know, something else that's, that's been really exciting for me to be a part of um, and, and to work with you all on is you're a very innovative firm. You know, and you just touched on something. You get calls from clients. We work with firms here at Mammoth as well that want to start a new fund. You guys help them with that. You help them prepare the documents as well. Mm -hmm. um, but you've done some great innovation there to help those firms do that efficiently, which, you know, is something that with Mammoth, our origin story started with how do we start funds? How do we help people start funds? And how do you do it efficiently when that's so many different point solutions come together and you guys have done a great right. job of really helping them on the, on the legal side. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate yeah, that. Of course. Yeah, we, we are an innovative firm and we're, I, I think sometimes traditionally you don't, when you think of tech, you don't think of law firms, but we try to also be on the cutting edge of tech and we have a fantastic team of, you know, some attorneys and some non-attorneys who are working on solutions. We're mapping out, I was just on a call the other day where we're mapping out various types of technologies, how you can actually link some of those together to provide efficiencies. You know, superior product is number one. You know, people want things turned around very quickly. We try to service that as well. But, you know, I'm, I'm not one to rush things, you know, to sacrifice on quality. But there are some tools out there that are helping us build a better mousetrap, if you will, helping us, you know, get to the end point in a, perhaps in a more collaborative way. That's the other thing. We we have a lot of fantastic clients that uh, we can build these collaborations with. And, um, you know, once you've got something in place, we can spin it out from there and, you know, hopefully have a long-term successful relationship on both ends. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the things, like I said, that we're so excited to to work with you on is how do we help our firms get to the point where, you know, you're really being collaborative with your attorney rather than uh -huh. <laughs> working with your attorney to get to your at-bat, right? So, right. How do we help kickstart that to more efficiently get to the point where you're actually being collaborative and addressing okay. like the specifics about your situation? And that's really exciting. So, you know, I give you a round of applause for, um, for doing that. And well, I think it, it aligns well with the type of industry that we focus on with advisors who tend to be fiduciaries and, you know, have the best interest of their client. We, we love that you guys do that. So, yeah, you want to serve those best interests. And I, I would say too, I, I love those planning sessions because everybody, thinking out loud, if you will. I mean, that really helps the process. And if we know what the client's goals are, and there might be several goals, sometimes you have to rank them, right? We have regulations to deal with, we have tax laws to deal with. So, you know, sometimes something has to give. In working through that process, it's really helpful for us. And I, I think that helps us, you know, provide a better product. You know, sometimes just in casual conversation, somebody will say something and it, you know, you can jump right in and say, whoa, you know, that that raises this issue with private funds in particular. I mean, registered funds, we obviously have uh, the 40 Act rules and 33 Act that we're dealing with. With private funds, we have to worry about exemptions from a variety of different rules or regulations. And so it is a, a little bit of a web that you have to deal with and, you know, make sure you're not doing something over here that's going to cause an issue over there. Yeah. That actually brings me to, you know, one of the questions that I had is a lot of the time 
we we want to be confident in our advice and we want to be confident in how we're operating our businesses. And I think that sometimes specifically around private investments, there are some maybe common misconceptions. And I imagine that you run into some where people think they're right. And all of a sudden you're like, well, let me tell you what, what door you're opening. You remind right. sharing any of those with us? <laughs> I mean, I can talk about it in general. One of the common misconceptions we've run across over the years and one of the minefields is, I think a lot of your clients may already be registered investment advisors, but you know, you have a lot of uh, first-time fund clients and they they might not have a separate investment advisory business. So there's always questions around, what am I? Am I an investment advisor? Do I need to register? Do I need to register with the state? Do I need to register with the SEC? Am I an exempt reporting advisor? How long can I rely upon that? If you're doing a private fund and you're exempt from state registration, once you hit $25 million, you're a mid-level advisor and you need to go file with the SEC probably as an exempt reporting advisor. So there's a, there's a lot of little details like that that people can overlook. Pooled investment vehicles in general, you know, a lot of times when we talk about, so there's different regulations that cover, you know, how you offer the interest in a pooled investment vehicle, which is a private fund, you know, or perhaps some sort of other SPE or SPV. It depends on what it is, what you're investing in. Sometimes when I tell people what the rules say, they don't believe me at first. <laughs> so, and I think there are some people out in the market doing various things that maybe are not in line with all of the rules and regulations. And so if, you've, if you have part of that information, you've seen something, you know, that's where it's, it's good for us to be able to educate. Tell us who it is or tell us what they're doing. We might be able to backtrack and figure out, you know, how they're doing it that way. Or maybe they're just not doing it right. But there are a myriad of rules and regulations that you need to comply with. And I think, you know, that's that's daunting if you're new to the space. I, I totally understand it. I totally get it. Sometimes people, like I said, people are often surprised. Yeah. Sometimes I'm the bad cop. I mean, mm. just within the last year, they redid the advisor marketing rules. I'm sure a lot of your clients are familiar yeah. with that. You know, there are some things in there that people really didn't like, and uh, a lot of people had to change uh, change some of their practices. Yeah. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you cover some of those? What are some of the things that you found that people just didn't like? Well, a lot of the rules around, you know, prior performance or hypothetical performance and how you, okay. how you need to present it. You need to present it net of fees, you know, how you calculate those fees in certain circumstances. Quite frankly, even within the rule itself, it's they put out some FAQs that made things a little clearer, but yeah. um, it can be difficult to comply with. And well, not difficult to comply with, but it can be difficult to present the information sometimes that you think your clients really want to see. Mm, that's so that, interesting. That would probably be the biggest thing. The regulations are constantly there. I'm a I'm I'm a fan of Formula One. There's we talked like, about it. yes, yeah. There's this funny joke where you know they talk about like 30 years ago, even probably even less, but. 30 years ago, the regulation handbook was an inch thick. And today you're stacking volumes of telephone books on top of each other. It's very similar to financial markets. And look, we're all smart, creative people. And we're trying to squeeze as much juice out of the lemon as we can. And regulation's there to kind of keep the playing field fair and legal and keep people safe, right? And so... Yes, that's what the regulators would say, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I do. There are, are times where it seems like they're trying to regulate for a problem that just doesn't exist. There's some battles going on right now. But 
I think the SEC, you know, they want to protect investors and protect the mainstream investors primarily. And so as there are more technology advances, that becomes more problematic from a regulatory perspective. I mean, one of the things, quite frankly, they they went through within the last year and, you know, there's rules around uh, record keeping, right? And so record keeping includes any sort of communication you have with your client. Everyone, I'm sure, has their email captured and stored, but it became, what about texting? What about other sort of DMing over different types of technology? You know, it's expensive to capture that information. And so that's why a lot of smaller firms didn't want to do it or tried to in the past, I've tried to uh, have rules around what, how you can and cannot communicate with clients. But the reality is, you know, everyone's texting. And so they went through and find some of the larger firms. You know, the fact that the larger firms weren't even doing it, the ones who can actually afford it, that's pretty telling. But, you know, the SEC means business. I mean, these the record-keeping rules have been along, around for a very long time. It's just the mode of communication that has changed. And so the industry needs to, to change as well. It needs to change some practices. And it costs money. Yeah. And as all this happens and it layers on more and more and more cost to providing services, right, that naturally kind of starts to exclude some of the audience that we hope to serve. And, you know, compliance is such an important piece. The other services that have expanded and the number of firms who provide them have kind of exploded are these outsourced compliance providers. And if you can find a good one, that fits your needs, even if you have an in-house CCO, they can be invaluable at times. Even if you have someone you can just call on a case-by-case basis. The more complex your business model is, the more resources you need to have on the compliance side. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely not a place that you want to get caught shorthanded, right? So it's all good until it's not. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's all good until it's not. I mean, the other thing to consider is those compliance policies and procedures need to be reasonably designed, you know, to mm-hmm. prevent securities law violations. And so the SEC does take into account, you know, what your resources are, the size of the firm. But at the end of the day, it does need to be reasonably designed. I think if you're making a good faith effort, uh, that actually go- does go a long way. Mm-hmm. If you find a, a mistake or something you've done wrong, correct it. You know, when the, the regulars come in to examine you the next time, they'll be pleased to see that. So I have one question, and we, we feel these questions from firms all the time, and I'd love to hear your view is, you know, if I'm a registered investment advisor, I'm already registered with the SEC, and I've been managing money for my clients, maybe I've made some allocation to different private investments, maybe even fund vehicles, but I see a lot of deal flow, and I'm thinking about setting up my own fund, or maybe even just an SPV if there's an opportunity that some of my clients might want to pool their money to take advantage of this opportunity. How big of a jump is that from going from being, you know, an RA that's managing my client's money in public markets to now all of a sudden being a fund manager as well? I don't view it as a, a huge leap. I mean, obviously, you need to do your homework, make sure you're comfortable with these investments. It sounds like you've perhaps put a few clients in them here and there already. And so that's the that's the biggest piece, quite frankly. And, uh, you know, having confidence that the investments are appropriate for your clients. A lot of times when we have first time fund advisors, it's because their clients are asking for it. They want to go into some sort of alternative investments, but perhaps they want a lower minimum, right? They want to mitigate their risk some, to some extent. And if you've got accredited investor clients or qualified purchaser clients, you know, depending upon what the investment is. You know, the idea is by pooling them together, it will actually save everyone some cost. And then you can also 
include your fee in there or you know sometimes it's offset by the fee they're already paying there's a variety of different ways to structure that it's really doing your homework making sure you feel comfortable with it and adding the additional compliance pieces that would go along with sponsoring some sort of private fund or a, you know a vehicle you put together for one individual investment and then updating your form ADB that goes right along with it we don't view that as a big leap and there are more and more people doing it more and more people are interested in, you know, setting up some sort of vehicle. And really it's because they want to be able to better serve their clients because it might be cost prohibitive if you're not pooling those interests. Yeah, hundred percent. And, you know, the, some of the conversations that we have is these firms will have clients with LP interest and funds all over the place. And the advisor has a very hard time uh, staying at the center, not only of the transaction, but also mm-hmm. in the, in the day-to-day and ongoings that really um, they should be in the middle of uh-huh. and it becomes difficult. And, you know, we hear it all the time where there's missed capital calls and all these things. And at the end of the day, even if I'm an advisor and I introduce my client to a fund and then they make a direct investment in that fund and those capital calls are going to them and they're missing it. And they still look to me as the one that should be in the know. Should be on top of it. Yeah. And um, the infrastructure isn't there. So you know, one solution could be starting your own fund, allocating that, and then you have the direct relationship with those GPs and all those actions come directly to you. That's right. Staying organized. And and you can integrate all of that into your into your client's statement and be confident that it's correct. There are a lot of advantages. If you've got clients who are doing that type of investing, there are a lot of advantages. Absolutely. And that's where having an awesome legal partner that um, is a well-rounded firm that can handle all of these, um, have specialists in each one of these areas where they can really help you do this and not just help Mm -hmm. you do it, but help you do it efficiently and stay on top of the regulation for you and work with your compliance team, right? Right. Yep. Yep. Work with your compliance team, stay on top of the regulation. You know, depending upon the types of investors you have as well, if you if you've got any sort of you know nonprofit or ERISA investors, that you know there's other rules that you know apply to them, <laughs> other tax considerations that apply to them. So I don't know that I mentioned this earlier, but you know at Thompson Heim, we are a full service law firm, and so we have all of those pieces in house. We're able to deal with some pretty complex structures and even international uh, structures or investments as well. It's really a matter of getting the right partner or at least finding someone who knows enough to know, you know, where the stress points are, where they need more information, where they might need to bring in somebody else to help out. Flagging the issues, that's step number one. Uh, right. You know, make sure you've got them all properly flagged and resolved. And this brings up even another uh, another question, which we hear quite quite frequently, and it's, you know, in the headlines often, is this concept of liquidity and is it you know, a pro or a con? Is it a feature or a bug? Many skilled people can make an argument either way. Um, but at the core of it, where I think it really rises up is this idea that's coming around, which is secondary markets. What do you think about secondary markets? And I know there's been a lot of regulation around that as well, but also a lot of advancements that are taking there place. I think for years, everyone has been trying to trying to advance the secondary markets with respect to private investments. And, you know, the reality is there are some regulations that, you know, hamper that, obviously. I mean, these are, you know, these are private vehicles. They're not registered funds where you would have more liquidity. There are, once again, like there are tax considerations, a variety of considerations that come into it. But we are seeing more and more 
you know, various platform or other service providers who are able to help, you know, manage those transactions, manage the liquidity in a way that can be beneficial to not only the investors, but the advisors and potentially the sponsors of the funds as well. I think technology advances, quite frankly, are one of the things that have really helped that. I mean, it's everything used to be done by paper, right? And there's just a lot of back and forth, a lot of lawyers involved. You have to make sure you have the documents appropriately lined up. But technology is helping on that front as well. And it, you know, it can enable you to track to track things for publicly traded partnership purposes and other things. So secondary markets are there's a lot of demand for that, a whole lot of demand for that. And I think there have been major advances and more to come, quite frankly. I mean, that's another place where I think uh, blockchain is going to help out. Yeah, this kind of comes full circle. Uh, you mentioned yeah. this earlier, but the you know the technology, the underpinnings around crypto that have become mainstream now where we start, well, I wouldn't say mainstream, but are becoming more common, which this concept of tokenization and uh, mm-hmm. you know how you have take ownership, smart contracts, putting that mm-hmm. on blockchain, um, on those public ledgers. I think is going to be the future. We see it in across industries being explored. And I think just in private markets in general, you could almost skip, you know, you see this in, in third world developing countries, they skipped the infrastructure of the internet. They didn't have, Mm -hmm. yeah, they totally just leapfrogged this idea of having what we have, which I look out my window and I have a a cord for my internet coming from a pole to my house. And, you know, they skipped the whole thing and they jumped straight to satellite. Mm Mm-hmm. And the adoption of technology just skyrockets, you know, entire infrastructures and banking and everything all on mobile, mobile first. Everything. I think that we can see private markets do that too. Absolutely. It is definitely coming. And, you know, it's along with that come challenges. I think the regulators are not real happy about that. But the U.S. regulators for many, many years have been advancing the forms that you submit for a variety of different types of registrations, your your Form D when you're selling a private security, 13F filings, you know, everything. They've been modernizing those over the past, I don't even know how long it's been. It's been several years. And they're collecting a lot of data and they're cross-referencing that data. They're using AI to cross-reference that data. I think collectively, you know, the entire industry will ultimately be improved in the long run. It all boils down to the technological advances, quite frankly. And I mean, society is becoming more sophisticated, right? You've got more and more people that are that are hitting that accredited and investor mark. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I don't know, don't hold it against me, but I think that probably one of the things that will happen next is we'll see the definition of accredited investor get updated, right? It's yeah. been a while. It, well, it has been a while, but you know, they, uh, they did a rule change a while ago and it has regular step ups already built in it. In it. Mm, I'm not exactly sure when the next step up is going to occur, but right, that, that could always be on their agenda to increase those limits as well. That could definitely happen. We talked earlier about regulators and, uh, what they do and, you know, how they're trying to benefit people. You know, we also in the registered fund space we have coming online this year, they're, they're called tailored shareholder reports. So if you invest in any uh, mutual funds, ETFs, et cetera, you are going to get a new type of report. There will still be a longer report available, but what's going to get mailed to you is a, a shorter report. The idea is it's a little more appealing, I guess, for people to read some charts and graphs. Okay. Um, <laughs> so not just a prospectus. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're still going to get a, you still have a prospectus, but um, the shareholder reports, these tailored shareholder reports, that is one place where I think perhaps it was a solution without a problem. But, you know, the, the end goal is to make these things more interesting and appealing and easier for the typical investor to just read themselves and understand what's going on you know, so they can understand their fees, they're paying, et cetera. Part of that is also uh, standardizing the the benchmark indices that you see a little bit more so that they're a little bit more universal. Make it easier for investors to compare apples to apples, perhaps. There's no shortage of new regulations and um, changes coming everyone's way. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I don't think it's slowing down anytime soon. Well, Cassandra, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. And I know we have a list of questions. Uh, one of the things I'm really looking forward to working with you on is we are working on some some Q&A and FAQs yeah. um, for our audience. And we'll make those available inside Mammoth. We'll also link to your LinkedIn and, and everything else in the show notes. But for those that want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? That would be great. My email address is Cassandra.Borchers, full name, at ThompsonHine.com. We'd be happy to talk to any of your listeners, see if there's a way that we can help out. But we are going to work to put together some good FAQs or Q&As. Yep. Uh, you know, to give people some general information, I think you and I talked about, there's some kind of standard questions that, that we do get very often. And um, yeah. I'm always happy to educate people around the securities laws. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Best practices are a huge, huge help. And so we want to put those together Mm -hmm. and help people just be guided and nudged in the right direction and maybe know when it, when it is a good time to reach out to a legal professional. And, and uh, yeah, again, we're, we're grateful to have you as a partner and um, thanks again for joining us today. Well, thank you. I'm so excited. This was wonderful. All right. Well, thank you everyone so much for listening to this episode of alternative universe. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth Technology and produced by Turncast. If you like the show and consider sharing it with a friend or a colleague, you can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this episode right now. Uh, For more information about Mammoth Technology and the alternative universe, visit us at mammothtechnology.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered advice. The participants may have financial interests in the companies discussed on the podcast.